Parshas Dvarim, Moshe relates the episode of Yisro, where Yisro advised him to, to uh, delegate some of his judicial responsibilities to appoint judges under, under him. And Moshe recounts what he did. So he recounts that the charge, the charge he uh, gave to the judges is, Shemoah ben Achechem, you should hear causes between your brethren, and you should, you should judge those cases. So the Gemara makes a, an interesting, a very important drasha from the phrase Shemoah ben Achechem. Kipshuto, it just means uh, hear cases between Achechem, between your fellow Jews. But the Gemara has a drasha in Sanhedrin. The Gemara says, Amr Rabbi Hanina, this is an admonition to the Bastin. It should not listen to claims, to, uh, to arguments of one of the litigants before the other litigant has arrived. That's the first aspect of this drasha. And, well, alternatively, The same, the same imperative applies to the litigant. The judge shouldn't listen to one litigant without the other one present. The litigant should not try to petition the judge without the other litigant present. Karinami shma ben achechem that you should uh, that 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 it applies to the litigant as well. That the that he has to make sure that the that, that the other litigant is here when he uh, when he uh, when he presents his case. Rashi explains that the Shmad Varecha Ben Achechem, Kishatia Shnechem Yachad, Mashma, that the, that, that this Drasha, the first Drasha Rashi says, Shema Ben Achechem is when they're both there, then, uh, th- th- then listen to them. But don't, don't, don't listen to them, don't hear them out, one without the other one there. And Shema is Shmad uh, Varecha, that, that's, ad- that, that's addressed to the litigant, make your words heard. When, when you're both here. So it applies to both of them, that, that both of them are not supposed to, he's not supposed to hear the, the case without, the judge is not supposed to hear the case without both litigants being present. Litigant is not supposed to present his case without both of them being present. Both of those drushers are derived from this puzzle. Yes? What, what do you want to eat? Take. So, wh- what's the problem? Why are we concerned... Why are we concerned with, uh, with one litigant making a case when the other litigant is not around? So Rashi says, because there's a temptation, there's a natural inclination to say Sheker, because uh, you have no qualms, the litigant may have no qualms about telling falsehoods, because he knows that he's not in danger of being contradicted. Unless someone is you know, completely brazen, completely immoral, even, even if he's willing to lie, but he's, he has some shame, he's not willing to lie about something that he, he's about to be contradicted and about to be uh, called out for lying. So if the other litigant is not there, he's more likely to, uh, he's more likely to say Sheker. Furthermore, Rashi says, even though later when the other litigant comes, he'll be very quick to say, he told you that, he's lying, so later he'll, he'll call him out. So Rashi says, but, but there's a problem that's not so easily corrected here. Because once the Dayan has already heard one person's case, he has brazenly lied because nobody was there to contradict him. So uh, the Dayan already started to believe and started to accept his version of the story. It's not so easy for the Dayan to regain the equilibrium. 
and he, his mind has been poisoned, his mind has been uh, distorted already by hearing one litigant's claim, that's why it is inappropriate to hear one litigant without the other. This is what, in modern law, we refer to as ex parte communications, communications with the court when only one side is present. That is generally, in halacha, a... Uh, a, a, uh, a, a, a unacceptable, you're not allowed to do that, and we derive it from this pasuk of Shema ben Achechem. The Gemara actually goes on, the Gemara brings another source for this drasha, Rav Kanam or Mehacha, Milosisa, Losasi, that the pasuk says, Losisa Shemashav, that, again, a simple reading, it means you shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't give false testimony, you, you shouldn't say false things, but the, or, or, or the judges shouldn't, uh, shouldn't accept uh, false witnesses. But, we, uh, but again, we, we, we derive, we read the Pasuk both ways, that the litigant, had, the, the judge has an obligation not to hear false reports, the litigant has an obligation not to make a false report. And ob- again, obviously it applies to a deliberately false report, but the Gemara understands that it also applies to ex parte communications since they lend themselves easily to be false, because you don't have the, the check on you that the other guy is going to call you out as a liar. So that's something that leads, that leads uh, too easily to falsehood. And that's included in Losisa and Losasi. That's included in false reports. Don't listen to... The, you shouldn't engage in ex parte communications because that, because that can lead too easily to falsehoods. The, the Ral Bag commenting on Mishle. The Pasuk in Mishle says, Tzadik harishon berivo uvareehu v'chakaro. That the first one in a quarrel is right, is Tzadik, and then the second one comes and tries to, uh, to get his side out and tries to correct the record by presenting his account. So, the, the Ralbag interprets this Pasuk in, in various ways. And he says, uh, part, part of it, one of his explanations is that it's the same idea that the, that the Gemara is making over here. He says, nashim, It's the way of people to believe, to believe the, side of a, the side of a quarrel that's presented to them first. Whatever, whichever side they hear first, that's the side that sounds plausible and right, and, uh, and that's the side they accept. And therefore, if the, if the litigants would appear before the judge separately, one litigant would appear without the other litigants and tell his side of the story, then the judge would believe what he said. And even though subsequently the other litigant would come and get his day in court and would say, that's not true, the, the facts are otherwise, the judge won't believe him because, uh, or he won't believe him unless there's an entire hakira, unless there's an elaborate uh, investigation. Therefore, th- that's not fair. That creates a fundamental asymmetry. That creates a bias toward the first account of the story. And, and therefore, that's why the Torah says that, that, that a judge is not supposed to hear one side of the story without the other side being present because that can, be, that can cause him to be partial to the side that he hears first, and, uh, and, and that's not acceptable. So, so that, that, again, that's what, Rashi, that's what Rashi also alludes to when he said earlier on the, on the Gemara, Rashi said that, Rashi had said that once the judge accepts the false version that the first person said, it'll be hard for him to, uh, to move away from that, and, to, uh, and, and hard for him to move away from that, and, 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 and really properly engaged with the second person's version of the, of the quarrel. And that's what the Pasuk Mishnah means. This is a Pasuk that many acronym bring when they discuss ex parte communications. This is why it's so fundamentally problematic for the judge to hear one side without the other, because whatever that guy tells him will enter into his heart and become accepted by him. And even though the other guy later will try to, re- will try to refute it and rebut it, 
it's hard, it's an uphill battle, there's a strong bias in favor of the first version that he heard, and therefore, you're not allowed to do that. Therefore, the, it, it, it's usher for a litigant to appear before a judge by himself, it's usher for a judge to hear one side of the story, to hear from one litigant without the other one being present. This is a halacha, as we'll see, it's going to be brought in Shulchan Aruch, and it is, it is actually widely discussed by the poskim. The poskim take this very, very seriously, contemporary dayanim as well, this is a major concern. People often approach a, approach a Rav, approach a basin informally, and, and try to relate their, their side of a quarrel. They say, I have a question, I'm not asking you to pass him, they say sometimes, I just want to know what's the halacha in such a case, I just want to understand the, the halacha. So that's what we're going to discuss tonight, what exactly are the parameters of this rule of Shema Ben Achechem, of the prohibition against dealing with, communicating with one side of a, one side of a quarrel, is it limited to Batei Din? Does it apply to other rabbis, other chachamim? What about a basin who doesn't currently have jurisdiction? This is something that we're going to discuss uh, for, for, the, for, the, for, for the rest of our talk tonight. We're going to discuss some of the parameters of, of this Isra of Shema Ben Achechem. We're going to see how it was applied by the postkin. One of the crucial early discussions of the topic, a lenient view on the topic, is found in a tshuva of Rabbi Shlomo ben Shimon Duran, the Rashbash, the son of the Tashbats. The Tashbats, the father was Shimon ben Semach Duran, his, father was Shlo- his son was Shlomo ben Shimon Duran, the Rashbash, great Tamidechamim in North Africa. So the Rashbash has, uh, has a tshuva where he discusses this question. Apparently, someone had challenged him, he had issued a, a ruling or written a tshuva. Based on, based on an account of one party, that one, one party to a quarrel had written a, a question to him, Shailas of Tshuva full of this. Frequently, the people had a, a dispute. They would write a Shaila to a rabbi. Sometimes it would be written by the basin that was handling the case. Sometimes it would be written by one of the two sides. would present his story to the posik. So the Rashbash apparently had responded to... Uh, the, the Rashbash the apparently had, had responded to a question that was put to him by one side to a quarrel. And somebody was unhappy with him. Somebody said, Shema ben Achechem, you're not allowed to engage with, with one party to a quarrel. So how could you uh, write something? How could you discuss a halachic question when you aren't uh, hearing from both sides together? Shema ben Achechem. Asir l'dayin, l'shema divri baldin. So how could you do that? So the Rashbash answered, Zubi adenuhi. We, I, I certainly am familiar with this halacha, and I live by it. We have not violated Chazal's injunction. We, we're familiar with it. We have seen it. We've taken it into account. We, uh, we adorn ourselves with it, meaning we take it very seriously. We respect it, he says. I respect it. That, that has nothing to do with the current situation. Why not, he says. This Azhara only applies to a diet. Someone who's a judge, someone who has, someone who has jurisdiction... Uh, is not is someone who actually has the authority to rule on the case is not supposed to hear is not supposed to hear one side without the other. However, he says, my own father, the Rashbats, Rabbi Shimon ben Semach Duran, known as the Tashbats often, other Rabbanim, he says, his predecessors in this area, he says, in other areas, they frequently responded to petitioners, people who asked them questions about the halacha. They weren't appointed as a dayan. People asked them, like you ask, uh, you, you tell a rabbi about a shayla that you had. People, people spoke to rabbis, and the rabbis were willing to respond. How can they do that? They only heard one side of the story. The answer is, they didn't say, we are giving an authoritative ruling, this is the halacha. 
Avalomrim. All they said was, according to the version of the story you presented to me, this would be the din. As the, as the lawyers say, it's a hypo, a hypothetical. According to this fact pattern, according to these, these details that you've presented, I don't know if they're true or not, but, and I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not committing myself to the truth or falsehood of your account, but in the halacha, the, in, in the situation that you presented, this would be the halacha. What's the point of that? If he doesn't know if that's actually what happened, what's the point of, of issuing such a, such a tshuva? He says that the tshuva is intended for Dayane Hamakam. The local Dayanim can read the Posik's tshuva. They can, read, they can read what he said, and they'll see whether the Shiloh was fairly presented. If the Shiloh was MS, if they agree that the, that, that, the, that the person did succeed in presenting the question in an impartial and accurate and fair way, and therefore the Posik's analysis is on target, is applicable to the case then they can accept it. And if not, if they find that it was not presented fair, or unless they find, unless they disagree with the analysis. Since, he, since the post was not the judge, they're not bound by his ruling. They can say, we disagree with his analysis. But the point is, it's, uh, the point is he's, not the, he's not the judge. He has no authority. He's simply giving uh, an, an informational and advisory ruling, and it's explicitly contingent on the facts of the case. It's simply meant to be a resource for the Dayanim who do have jurisdiction, the local Dayanim, to uh, aid them in reaching their conclusion, and therefore Shema Ben Achechem does not apply. Shema Ben Achechem only applies to the Dayan who actually has jurisdiction, since his ruling is going to bind the parties, his ruling is going to determine the outcome of the case, he has to make sure he gets the facts right, because his ruling is going to hinge on his facts, and the facts, the, the facts presented to him, so he has to make sure that he has no ex parte communication, so that his understanding of the story should be accurate. But a, a di- but a, but a posik who's just being consulted, who's just writing a ruling that's advisory, that's informational for the local dayanim to use in their psak, that's fine. He doesn't have to know the accurate story. He'll just write, according to this version of the story that I heard, whether it's true or not, this is what the halacha would be, and the local dayanim will apply it as appropriate. So that's what the Rashbash says. So according to the Rashbash, when, when someone approaches you with, with, with a shayla and says, this is, uh, this is what happened, what's the halacha? You can't paskin, but you can say, apparently, that in this particular case, this is what the halacha would be. Now, the Rosh Bash is talking about the way you're writing to the dayanim. You're not, writing, you're not giving this ruling to the litigants themselves. Frequently, what happens is, the litigants themselves, one of them approaches a rabbi and says, this is my story, what's the halacha? And even if the dayan is careful to say, well, according to the facts that you presented, this would be the halacha, but I don't actually know what happened, since you're giving that into a partisan actor here to one of the litigants himself, he will frequently take what you've given him and then go around saying, Rabbi X said that I'm right. All Rabbi X actually said was, according to the facts that you presented, insofar as they are true, and there isn't another side to the story, then this is what I would rule. But that already is dangerous. If you're not writing to a Dayan, to a third party you can trust, that actually is potentially a problem. The Rashbash doesn't get into that. He just says, if you're not paskining, if you're not issuing a, an actual ruling, you're just issuing an analysis of a particular fact pattern, that's okay, and the local judges, will, it's their job to apply it insofar as, they, as the facts as, as reported were correct and insofar as they agree with the analysis. The, the Rivash... Rivash has a discussion of this question as well. The Rivash was a colleague of the Rashbash's father, the Tashbats. The Rivash takes a much tougher line, a much stricter rule that, about a judge not responding. He says, he, he, he says, Luya Dati, he, he again, he apparently had responded to a, to a litigant in a case. 
and Rivash regretted it. He he said I I was missing. I said I misunderstood his his role in the drama. Had I known that he was a baldavar, I thought he was a rabbi. Had I known that he was a baldavar, I would not have answered him. Had I known that he was one of the principals, I would not have answered him at all. Because again, if you uh, if you answer one litigant without having heard the other side, there's a good chance that your that your interpretation will be will be wrong. It's avelis, he says. It's uh, it's it's wrong. It's stupid to do such a thing. Uchlima, it'll be a source of humiliation. Because again, tzadikarishin berivo bareo bachakaro. He, he, he takes this pasuk in the opposite direction. He says that sometimes you'll be initially seduced by the Rishon's presentation, but the second guy, when he gets his, his day in court, he'll uh, persuade you that you made a mistake, and you'll be forced to retract, you'll be forced to admit that your initial ruling was based on a, uh, based on a misunderstanding, a, a, a tendentious version of the story, and you'll have to retract your initial ruling, and that'll be embarrassing. People will mock you for having been uh, led by the nose by the first litigant. So he's saying, even though you're not going to issue a, a binding ruling, you're just going to issue a kind of provisional ruling, you're going to say, based on your account of the story, pending your opponent's account, this is what I would say, that can lead to humiliation, it can lead to you being made a, made a fool out of, that you're going to have to say that uh, you were too quick, you jumped the gun, you hadn't heard the other side of the story. So first of all, it's, not, uh, it, first of all, it's wrong because it leaves you open to ridicule. Second, he gives another reason, he says, because... By, by giving an advisory opinion, a provisional opinion, to, to one litigant, he says, then the litigant will learn to uh, adjust his claim based on, what he, based on he, how he sees the Dian's reaction. If, if the Dian says, you know, this claim has no merit, so he'll modify his claim, he'll lie, and he'll, he'll rewrite his claim, he'll, rewrite, he'll, uh, he'll, he'll, he'll react, and he'll, he'll evolve his, uh, his position in, uh, in, 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 in response to the Dian's ruling, and that'll lead him to, to, to lie. He'll, he'll, he'll say, okay, if that didn't win, I know I'll have to make a different claim. And, he, and that, that, that may induce him to lie. If he sees what the strong points and weak points of his claim is, of his claim are, then he'll modify his claims accordingly. It'll lead to Shekhar. And that's also wrong. And that's also wrong. That also leads to a miscarriage of justice. So the Rivash is, uh, the Rivash is, is stricter than the Rashbash. The Rashbash said, as long as you're not the Dayan, it's okay, because uh, you're just issuing a provisional advisory ruling, the Rivash says that, yeah, but if you issue such a ruling to the, if you issue a ruling like that to the litigants, the litigants, uh, first of all, he says, you, you may end up looking like a fool if you have to retract and revise it. Second, he says, you're, uh, you're enabling the litigants to, to, to manipulate their claims, to, to, to massage and to distort their claims in response to what the clues you gave them about the halacha, and that'll lead to Shekhar. I've actually always wondered about the, the cogency of this argument, by the same logic, we should never teach Choshen Mishpah, we should never teach the halacha of, uh, of, uh, of, of, of interpersonal affairs, because if, if the argument is that the more a person knows about the halacha, the more tempted he'll be to adjust his claims to, uh, in, in a way that he'll win, so don't teach people anything. Don't give shiurim in Choshen Mishpah, the, because the more he knows, the more he'll learn to, uh, to lie and to... Uh, and to, and, to, and to make his claim in such a way that he'll win. So, it's, so I don't know, if you're really worried about this, then, then I'm not sure how far to take it. But I'll call upon him, this is the sheet of the Rivash, that in general a Dayan shouldn't even issue a provisional ruling, B'derech Imkain, the post can say, saying according to the facts as you presented them, this would be the Halacha. People frequently come to Dayanim asking them to do this, and it's uh, according to the Rivash, you shouldn't do it for these two reasons. First of all, because 
you'll, you'll look like a fool if you have to retract it. Second, because you can, you can enable Sheker by, 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 by teaching him too much about the strong and weak aspects of his case. You'll cause him to, uh, to write his case, to write his claims in order to fit the halacha that, that will enable him to win, which will lead to Sheker. A nafkamina between these two reasons might be if you didn't issue a formal public ruling, as often happens today, if you issue an informal ruling off the record on the phone or something, so maybe they're not going to quote you. First of all, they will quote you anyway. They'll say, I spoke to uh, somebody who said X, Y, Z. Even if you tell them you're not going to be quoted, even if you stipulate it off the record, you have to assume you'll be quoted anyway. But even if, you, even if you're going to argue that the danger of, uh, of embarrassment is not as great because you can always deny it, he doesn't have any proof, and so on, but the second reason still applies. The second reason applies in spades, that if you, uh, if you talk to him about his case and you tell him that you're going to lose because this claim has no merit, he'll say, okay, so when he comes to the Dintara, he'll make a different claim. That, that, that he'll, 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 he'll change the facts to, uh, to, to what he now knows is a, is, a more, is a more successful claim. And that's a very strong reason against a Dayan discussing anything with a litigant, even informally, even... Uh, even uh, even in, even in a completely advisory capacity, the second reason of the Rivash would seem to apply. Of course, the second reason of the Rivash would completely apply in spades to the whole institution of the towing. A towing, a rabbinic counsel, is someone who helps a litigant prepare his case, helps him present his case in court. He acts very much as, as a lawyer would, as, as an advocate would in the secular judi- judicial system. Towing are a common feature of modern Dine Torah. And according to the Rivash, the whole institution of a towing seems to be seems to violate uh, this whole idea of Chazal because because certainly when you have a towing, he can certainly teach you how to be mashakir. He can certainly tell you which claims have merit and which don't. And if you if you're concerned about the, about the baldin learning to be mashakir, ein lecha learning to be mashakir when he has a towing. The Debrusina Rav Ber Moshe, Rav Moshe Stern, has a. Uh, has a uh, characteristically uh, vehement tshuva, colorful and vehement tshuva. He's criticizing the institution of Zebar Loechad. We'll touch on that later. That's an institution where if, if the litigants can't agree on a basin, which basin they're going to go to, so the Gemara provides a procedure that each one chooses one dayan, each one picks a dayan of his own, and then the two dayanim, or the two litigants together, they pick a third dayan, and those three dayanim here are the case. So each one gets to choose one of the three, and then they jointly choose a third. That's called Zebar Loechad. He chooses one, and he chooses one. Zebar Loechad, Zebar Loechad, and together they choose a third. That's called Zebar Loechad, abbreviated as Zavla, Zion Beis, Lamed Aleph, Zebar Loechad. So the problem with Zebar Loechad is even though all three dayanim are supposed to be impartial, we'll, we'll touch on this a little bit later, in practice they often aren't. In practice, each one's dayan acts as a quasi-advocate for his case, and the whole system can degenerate into a uh, into completely tendentious uh, dayanim, who are partisan, and Poskim are very unhappy with the way Zavla is often implemented. So the Debrusiner has a chuva where he rails against Zavla, and a large part of the problem is that he thinks it's a corrupt system, where, where the Borim have, have the primary goal of enabling, the, of ensuring that their client wins, and he says... He was always reluctant to sit on Zavla, but sometimes he did. He says, and, and, and we were, he says he was once, I think he says he was once the Shalish, he was once the, the neutral Dayan in a, in a Zavla case where each party had chosen a Borer. And he says, there was a strong suspicion that one of the two sides was lying. 
and they were trying to cross-examine him to pin him down, to catch him uh, in the lie. So he was largely prepared, but they found a chink in his armor, they found a weak spot in his, uh, in his presentation, and they were, they were zeroing in, they were homing in, and they, were, they had him on the ropes, and he was, they, 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 finally they asked him a question, which they felt was likely to expose his, uh, his mendacity. So he says, we asked him this question, and the fellow was, uh, the fellow was, uh, was, was panicking. You know, he knew the game was up. He didn't, he didn't have an answer prepared for this question. So he looked at his borer and he said, How, what should I answer? How should I answer this question? So we were all shocked, he said, at the brazenness of this, the chutzpah. He was basically admitting that he was being coached on what to say and he wasn't telling the truth. Even the guy's borer, he said, his own borer had, the, had, the, had enough shame to be a little bit embarrassed by this. But because he was a paid and skilled advocate, he says, he quickly regained his composure, and he said, he told his client, his, uh, not supposed to be his client, but he told the person who had chosen him, just, say, just tell them the truth, he said, and if you're not sure, if you don't remember, just say you don't remember, and we all rolled our eyes, he said, basically, we all understood that that was a polite way of saying that he would, that he, it, would it was just a way of, uh, of, of, just a way of securing more time, where we, he knew he'd be able to coach him properly to get through this question, I realized how corrupt Zeb, uh, Burris was, how corrupt Zavla was, he says. And from then on, I determined that I would never uh, sit on Zavla again. I'll call upon him the... This is certainly the danger that, that Burrim or that uh, Dayan who, who gives a provisional ruling, to, a one-sided ruling to a litigant, can certainly enable, even if it's not his intent, certainly if it is his intent, it can certainly enable the litigant to lie. And that's the second reason the Rivash says why you should not why you should not, uh, com- a dying should not communicate with a litigant, even if it's only provisional, even if it's, uh, even if it's, uh, even if he accepts that it's not binding, and that he has to have the other side first. Nevertheless, there are still these reasons why the dying shouldn't do that. The Ramah, the Ramah in Shulchan Aruch seems to go like this rivash. The Ramah says that, that a Chacham shouldn't write a psak to one of the Baladinim, even if he writes a Baderach Imkain, even if he just writes, I'm not Paskining authoritatively, I, I, I'm not committing myself to, the, to, to accepting the truth of the facts as you present them. There might be alternate facts. I'm simply saying, im kain, if so, according to the facts you presented, this is what would be the halacha. Um, he says you shouldn't do that. Or even to, even to say explicitly, this is not a psak, you shouldn't do that. Why? Because he brings, uh, he brings bo- both reasons of the rivash. He says... First, he says, by writing that, you're going to be teaching them a little too much. You're going to be educating them to be able to uh, misrepresent their claims if they see that the, the one, one version of the claim is not successful. They'll lie and revise their claims. And also, he says, you may have to uh, issue a retraction when you hear the other side of the story, and that would be as a loose so, so the So the... So unlike the Rashbash, who says, no problem if you're not to die and you're just issuing an advisory ruling... That's okay. The, the Ramah goes like the Rivash that you should. Uh, the Ramah goes like the Rivash that you should not do such a thing. The Pesachim brings the Achronim debate whether we do go like this, we don't go like this. Contemporary Rabbanim, contemporary Dayanim have different policies. There are some who indeed are very strict, like the Ramah, like the Rivash, who will uh, refuse to uh, to hear anything that involves a contentious matter that involves another side without, other, without both sides being present. Many rabbis are willing to listen to both sides for, for various reasons, and they'll say that, that this is the, I can't paskin, obviously they'll say that preface, nothing I say is binding, nothing I say 
it is worth quoting without hearing the other side, but if you're interested in education, I'm willing to tell you a little bit about the, the halacha. That is the more common attitude. The Pesachet brings a machlokas about this, about different Akharim took different positions. The Ramah, following the Rivash, though, is quite strict about this. The, there's another concern the Shach brings that if a Dayan, let's say a Dayan was asked by a, third, by a neutral third party. He wasn't asked by one of the litigants. He was asked by a neutral third party and he gave an advisory ruling, like in the case of the Rajbash. Then they come to him and say, we, we know what, you know, we were so impressed by your analysis, we want you to be the Dayan, we want you to actually be the Dayan. So the Shach says he should not do so, because now he's considered Nogeabadab. Once he issued the first ruling, it would be embarrassing if he had to retract the ruling and, is, and issue a contrary ruling. So he has a strong bias to, to support his... Uh, to double down to, to to double down his original ruling, that's called nagabadaver, and therefore he's no longer he's no longer qualified to serve on the case once he voiced even an advisory non-binding ruling. This is what you have all the time in the Supreme Court in the in the secular courts, where the where, where, where the judges often say that when you ask a judge or a reporter asks, "What do you think about this?" He'll often say, "You know, it's it's not appropriate for me to comment publicly on." cases that are before me, that might come before me, and so on. And this is one of the reasons. One of the reasons is because whatever you say will, uh, will kind of lock you into the position. It'll be, you'll have a bias to, uh, to, to keep that position, and therefore this is the point the Shach makes that, that you should not do this. That once you've done this, you, you shouldn't be a dying. The Shach attributes this to Rabbi Levi ibn Chaviv, known as the Maral Bach. The Maral Bach was one of the great, outstanding Tamil Chamim in Yerushalayim, a generation or so before the Shulchan Aruch. He was involved in one of the most epic controversies in the history of Halacha. He was involved in the great battle over the reinstatement of Smicha. Smicha is formal rabbinic ordination. Today we have a kind of ersat Smicha, a pseudo-Smicha, but back in the time of Chazal they had a, a real Smicha, which enabled people to sit on the Sanhedrin and enabled them to, to, you know, to, to control the calendar and so on. We haven't had Smicha for thousands of years, but the, there was a movement in the time, in the in mid-16th century, there was a movement in Eretz Yisrael to reinstate smicha based on a certain position of the Rambam. The details are beyond the scope of our talk tonight, but it was an epic machlokis between, between Rabbi Yaakov Beirav, a teacher of the Beis Yosef, uh, one of the great Gedolei Torah of Tzfas at the time, and his great opponent was the Maral Bach in Yerushalayim. So the way the argument went, forgetting the substance of the matter, putting aside the substance of the matter procedurally, the Rabbi Yaakov Rav got together with his colleagues and said, we believe, al that we have the right to reinstate smicha. Maral Bach said, don't agree, sorry, you're wrong, don't accept your position. Rabbi Yaakov Rav said, okay, but we are the majority. My based in my school in Sfas is larger than you and your school. And therefore, if we take a vote, we are the majority, and we, out, and we overrule you, we outnumber you, we overrule you, we follow the rove. Maral Bach said, nope, the rule is that unless you have a dialogue with me, rove only works if the rove engages the mute. You have to have uh, a quorum where everyone is together, and they debate the matter and discuss it together. Since you didn't talk to me about it, then even though you're the rove, you can't overrule me. So Rabbi Yaakov Rav said, okay, we're talking to you now. We're having a discussion about it. Let's discuss it. And then we'll vote. And if we still disagree with you, we'll outvote you then. Rablevi ibn Chaviv says, nope, too late, he said, because you already are locked into your earlier position. You are incapable of having an open-minded discussion about it at this point because you would be 
deeply embarrassed if you had to retract and say that Marlbach uh, demonstrated I was wrong and I, and I caved, that that would be very hard for you to do psychologically. So you are a Nogabadover. So you are now completely disqualified from ruling on the underlying halacha. Rabbi Yaakov Rab disagreed, but many Akronim accept Marlbach as being fundamentally correct that once a posseh goes on record as taking a certain position, he's no longer qualified to issue a, any further ruling on that matter anymore, if, if, if for some reason it has to be debated again, because he's no gabadaver. He has an opinion that he's, that he's partial to, that he wants to uphold, because it's uh, better for his self-respect, and therefore he can't do that. And says the shach, this applies to a dayan as well. Once a dayan issues, at least if he issues a public, even if it's only a provisional ruling, once he heard from one side, and he issues a ruling, and now he's asked to be an actual dayan on it, can't do that because now he's Nergebedov. The Ramah adds that this prohibition against ex parte communications only applies to someone who knows he's going to be a dayan. He shouldn't hear uh, one, side, one, side of the, one, one side of the story. However, let's say again, issuing a ruling, he shouldn't do even a provisional ruling because of the reasons of the Rivash, because it'll be embarrassing if he has to retract and because it'll lead them to be Meshachar. Let's say someone approaches the Dayan and tells him the story, just wants to use him as a sounding board, wants to talk to him about his case, so the Dayan doesn't expect, to, hit, doesn't expect to, to preside over the case, so he listens to his friend tell him the story. Then, the, then they decide to actually have him be the Dayan. So the Ramah says, as long as both sides agree that he can be the Dayan, that's fine. He, initially, he didn't violate the prohibition since he wasn't planning on being a Dayan. Subsequently, even though now he has heard one side of the story, as long as both sides agree to have him serve as the Dayan, that's fine. Rabbi Yonis and Ipshitz, however, in the Orem Batum says, that's of course, that's only if the Dayan discloses that he heard that he had what turns out to have been an ex parte communication. The Dayan has to say, okay, I'll hear your case, but you should know that I, that I already had the private consultation with your opponent. And Sadiq Harishan Bariva, you should know this, he says. And if the other side says, that's okay, you, I, I have such respect for your probity, or I have such respect for my own, uh, my own uh, uh, lawyer skills, uh, that, I, that I feel I can overcome any prejudice you have, that's fine, as long as it's properly been disclosed. However, if the Dayan fails to disclose an ex parte communication he had with a litigant, even if the other litigant says, we think you're a great Dayan, we want you, but it turns out he didn't know there were ex parte communications, then the other litigant has the right, upon learning of this, uh, of this undisclosed ex parte communication, the other litigant can say, sorry, I, I, I withdraw my consent to have you be the Dayan. I didn't know. That's true, I agreed to have you be the Dayan. That's because I didn't know that you had an improper ex parte communication. Now, or, it wasn't improper because you didn't know, but, but it, it's improper for you to be the Dayan now that I know that, uh, that you spoke to the litigant. And this happens. This happened, uh, this happened to me once. I was, I was once approached, uh, here in this community, I was once approached by, by someone who asked me to, uh, to help them to, to, to resolve a dispute he had with somebody else. So I said, okay, no problem. I told him, but you should know that the other side already approached me, and I you know, didn't issue a ruling, of course, but I, I discussed the matter with him, with Derek Imkane, and so on. And I'm happy to be the die for you, I said. If you want me to, to, to arbitrate your case, I'm happy to do that, but you should know that I already had a uh, private conversation with the other side. So they got back to me and they said, okay, thank you for telling us that. We would rather go someplace else. We, we would rather, it's not the Karish and Barivo. We, we would rather take the matter somewhere else. And I said, absolutely, that's your right. That, that, that's what the Torah says. That's what Chazal said. That it's, uh, it's problematic for the Dayan to, to, to judge a case if he has had uh, a one-sided communication without the other litigant being present.
So the point is, the Oren Batum says, that the Ramah says, it is waivable. If the, it is waivable. If the, if, if, if the person who is now going to be the Dayan has had a, a, what will turn out to be retroactively an ex parte communication, if, as long as the other litigant, it is disclosed to him and he accepts it, that's fine. But if it was not disclosed, that would be grounds for withdrawing his consent with the, withdrawing his consent from the, from having this die in here, the case. Now, the Oromitum continues and says, 300 years ago, he says, unfortunately, people are very lenient. This halacha is often flouted. People often do have ex parte communications with their, with Dayanim. Particularly, he says, when we're operating within the framework of Zavla, of Zebar Lo Echad, he says, this halacha certainly applies to Zavla as well. Why shouldn't it, he says. The whole concern of the Torah of Chazal is that if a dying hair is one side of his, one side of the story, he will not be able to judge fairly. Zavla, putting aside whatever it has become in modern times, Zavla is supposed to be fair. Even though it's true that each side gets to pick one dying, the Rishonim explain, the post can explain. That's just, to, that's just to give each litigant confidence in the fairness of the process. He won't think the whole basin is stacked against him. He'll know that because he picked one of the Dayanim, he can have confidence that that Dayan will make sure that any legitimate claim he has won't be overlooked. That, far, that much, yes, he says, but he's not supposed to be your lawyer. A lawyer is a towing. A towing is a borrower is not a towing. A borrower is not supposed to be a towing. The borrower is supposed to be an impartial Dayan, just one picked by you, so you have a more confidence that, 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 that he's going to make sure that, that no, no claim of yours is going to go unnoticed. But he has to be fair. He has to have all the of Dayanim. So how can he possibly have ex parte communications with you, he says. The Yonason Ayipshit says in the Oren Batumim that Bizman the 18th century, says people are lenient, particularly they're lenient when it comes to Zavla, that they, they have private consultations with their borer. That is wrong. He brings from the earlier Akronim, from the Ranach, from Rebel Yoav ben Chaim, that even Bizavla, it's usher to have ex parte communications. The Tumim says this is wrong, and it... Uh, this is wrong, and it has to be, it has to be, uh, this is wrong, and, and people are just doing the wrong thing. Sharmishpat, a little bit later, a few decades later, Sharmishpat says the same thing. He says, Nirad applies to Zavla as well. The Isser of ex parte communications does indeed apply to Zavla. It's also Usser to, uh, to have ex parte communications. Brings the Renach, and it's Pasha. Once again, he says, it is Pasha. Lamaisa, as Rebbe acknowledges the minog was to be lenient, and we do find that some poskim did justify the practice. Some poskim justified the minhag that at least in cases of zavla, people would have ex parte communications with their dying, so to speak. Rabbi Yitzhak of Posen, uh, one of the great acronym of several centuries ago, he says also the minog was people did this that when when we operate within the framework of zavla, which again, which means that each litigant selects one Dayan, and the third one is chosen mutually. So he says, each, each Zavla lays out, each, each of the two litigants lays out his arguments in the presence of his borer. What happened to Midrash Shekhar Tercha? Kalitz to Shekhar, Shema Ben Achechem, Losis Hashem Ashav. What happened to all these prohibitions? You're not allowed to do that. So, and the Ranach says, it's Nisra Daraisa. This is not just a Dindra Baran. This is Daraisa. It's learned from Sukkim. And it applies even to Zavla. So what on earth is the heter for doing this? The tomb says they're wrong. The Snapchat says they're wrong. They shouldn't be doing this. Rav Yitzhak of Posen says he thinks he can justify it. He, he doesn't think it's a great idea. He thinks it's, uh, 
He thinks it's wrong, it's, it's inappropriate, but he thinks technically we can find techn technical justification for it. He says it is a self-justifying minhag. As we've discussed in the past, some minhagim are self-justifying. He says once it becomes, how does that work? Once it becomes a widespread practice, he says everyone knows that's how people treat the Borim. They treat them as quasi-advocates and they, 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 they present their claims to them in private. So once, he says, that becomes the reality, he says, anybody who enters into the Zavala system knows that that's how it works in practice. And therefore, there is a de facto acceptance. Just as we said before in the Ramah, in the Urvatumim, that even if, a, even if a Dayan has had ex parte communications with a litigant because he didn't plan to be the Dayan, but he still is allowed to be the Dayan if both parties accept him. This is in general the halacha that even people who are not qualified to judge, let's say they're ignorant, they don't have sufficient uh, knowledge of the halacha, they're roi bakr, they're, they're shepherds, they're the cattle drivers, they're, they're not chachamim, he says. Nevertheless, the halacha is, the litigants can choose to accept them. They can choose to accept relatives, as witnesses, as judges, pretty much all, most of the psulim in the laws of Dayanim can be waived as long as the parties do so willingly. That's how we paskin. You can choose a woman, the halach is. You can have a woman be a Dayan, at least on an ad hoc, uh, one-off basis. Even though a woman, we paskin, is not eligible to be a Dayan, that can be waived by the litigants. So, so Rebiesek Posen says, he says, that's why, Zavlo, that's why people are lenient about about this idea of, of having ex parte communications with the borer in the case of Zavla, because the minig is self-justifying. Everyone knows that's how it works. When parties enter into the Zavla system, they understand that that's how it's going to work. Even though it's not according to the halacha, it works because the litigants have the right to accept uh, departures from the Shur Sadin. And even though they don't sign an explicit waiver saying that, since everyone knows that's how the system works, there's an implicit waiver, he says, there's an implicit acceptance of this uh, divergence from the halacha, he says, and that's why this is legitimate. So because everyone does it, that itself legitimizes it, it becomes mutter. Says Ravitzik Posen, nevertheless, he says, you can technically justify it, but it's wrong. Einza derech tovim, this is not the way Ehrlich people should behave. The goal of Basin is to get it right. So why would you introduce a system that the Gemara says leads to Sheker, even if they have the right to waive it? But what's the, why do that? Do you, why, why set up a system? Why participate in a system which, the, which the, the wisdom of the Torah tells us leads to Sheker? Shomer Nafsha Yirchak Mehem, he says, anyone who, is, uh, who wants to do the right thing will avoid uh, such a framework where people have ex parte communications with Dayanim. However, he says, we can't object, we can't, uh, we can't authoritatively protest, he says, because there is, there is this argument that he made, which is a technical justification, even though it is a, uh, even though it is a, uh, even though it's wrong, he says. Similarly, certain halachas about the compensation of the bar, and even if they are not really in accordance with halacha, he says, halacha has very strict rules for how a dayan can be compensated, it has to be, pay, has to be paid equally by both sides, and so on. Even though the Borim were paid more like advocates, they were paid by the, the, their compensation was negotiated independently with one side, which normally would violate Shochat, it would violate the, the rules, uh, the strict rules of how a dying is compensated. Nevertheless, the same justification applies, even though it's wrong, it's against the halacha, since that is the dominant, the, the widespread practice, and people know about this, there is an implicit acceptance of this, and therefore, again, 
it sounds like he's not thrilled with it. That again, Shochad is there for a very good reason. Shochad is corrosive. But nevertheless, he says, if people accept it and know it, Mikredin, it's okay. If the litigants choose to waive such a, uh, this noble procedural safeguard, we can't stop them. Even though, again, he says it's wrong. People who, people who want to do the right thing will avoid, particularly the, the, the ex parte communications, people will avoid engaging in, uh, in such a system. Archa Shulchan has similar analysis. He says that, first of all, he says, the point I made before, Zavla is supposed to be fair. Zavla doesn't mean, even though the Gemara does use language that says that each borer will focus on the claims of the litigant who chose him, mahapech b'schusei, he'll take extra care to, uh, to argue his position. That's not what it means. He says, based on Rishonim, it's not what it means. Chas v'shalom, that he becomes an advocate, it just means, or certainly not, that he's going to be mahapech b'sheker, or ba'arma, or b'takbula. Even a real advocate is not supposed to do that. Even a, even a, even a real advocate is bound by legal ethics not to, uh, not to engage in sheker and takbula. Even in American law, that's true. Certainly in halacha, you're not allowed to deliberately engage in sheker and arma and takbula. Chas v'shalom. Certainly a dayan can't do that. It means that he'll just, uh, he'll just make sure, he'll, he'll, he'll take extra care that no legitimate argument, no legitimate, uh, uh, no legitimate consideration in favor of his client is overlooked. That's what Ma'apek Peskusa means. He'll make extra sure that all of his, that all of his principles' rights are, uh, are, are, are brought to light, are considered in the Dintar. However, he says in general, he reiterates that Borim, even if they're chosen in the Zavla framework, they're not a standard neutral panel. Nevertheless, they have all the halachas of Dayanim, and therefore the rule of Shema Ben Achechem, of the prohibition against ex parte communications, still applies to Borim as well, like the Renach said, like Rabbi Yonasan Eibshid said, like the Sharmishpat said, like Rabbi Yonasan says in principle. All these things, uh, all these things really still apply. Mikra didn't still apply. However, he says the Minig was to be lenient. The Minig apparently for centuries was to be lenient. Since the 18th century, going down into the, the 20th century, the Minig was to be lenient. That, he, that people did ignore this halacha and each party would present ex parte his argument to his borer. And the reason is, again, the justification is, like Rebisa Kaposin, the reason is, since both sides do it and the Minig is to do it, it's as though they, it, there's an implicit acceptance of this by the two sides, even though in principle the halacha still applies to Zavla, once the minute became, how the minute started, again, chicken and egg situation, how did it start? Maybe they started by explicitly signing waivers, but, but once the minute started, one, and once the minute becomes entrenched and widespread, then we apply the standard rule that there's an implicit acceptance of this by the litigants, and therefore in practice the halacha does, the halacha does, uh, that the, 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 the halacha is not violated by doing this. Revisa Kaposin said, even though it's technically not violated, it's still wrong, it's still very much against the, the spirit of the Torah and the concern for MS, but the, he doesn't even say that, he just says the minag is self-justifying, once it's the minag, it is fine. Some, in, in the Sefer Halacha Psuka, they challenge the Aruch HaShulchan, they say, Chiddush Gadol, that litigants have the right to waive an Isr Torah, it's an Isr Torah, Shema Ben Achechem, it's Daraisa, we said. That uh, that it can lead to all kinds of sheker and, and perversions of din, tamua that the balai din can can just override an isur Torah. But again, the, the answer is like we saw in Rabbi Sokoposin. The answer is there are many halachas that the litigants have the right to waive. The halachas you have to be a man, not a woman. The halachas you have to be uh, talmudically learned. You have to be a talmud chacham. You have to be gomer v'saver. And yet the halacha you, you can't be a relative. That's also daraisa. With many halachas are daraisa, and yet we learn that you're allowed to waive it. 
So that's what Rabbi Yitzchak opposing the Aruch HaShulchan say, is that people do have the right to waive these things. And so it's two steps. First of all, they have the right to waive it, if they explicitly do so. And second, even if they don't explicitly do so, once it becomes the minog, once the minog is that, 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 that the Zabla system works this way, there's an implicit waiver, and the halacha, therefore, is not violated. But again, Ritzvah Kaposin says it's technically not violated, but it's still the wrong thing. If the Torah puts in protections that are meant to ensure that MS is maintained and Sheker is avoided, it makes a lot of sense. The point he makes, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, his concern, it's not, it's, not a, it's, not, it's not the right thing to do, Shomer and Shomer Nafsho, Yerchak, from doing such a thing.